We're trying to conduct a serious scientific investigation. Science, logic, reason. Do you have any hard data? Now, that's what I call science. Happy New Year, listeners! Welcome back to That's What I Call Science, the weekly radio show and podcast bringing you independent and interesting STEM, so that's science, technology, engineering, maths and medicine, from Tasmania. This show is supported by Edge Radio, Hobart's premium news station. Head on over to edge.org.au for more information about them. As we are recording on Luchuita, I'd like to begin today's episode by acknowledging the traditional owners of this land, the Palawa people. As we're a podcast, I'd also like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land from where you, our listener, are tuning in from. On behalf of everyone here in the studio, I pay my respects to elders past and present. So happy new year, listeners. It's 2023. This is the first Twix episode coming to you of the year. We're here at the Institute for Marine and Antarctic Studies. It's beautiful. It's sunny. There's a boat show going on outside. So the harbour's full of boats and people. It's pretty idyllic. I'm stoked to be spending the first episode of our 2023 season with the one and only Kate Johnson, our explorer botanist that you would have heard went on an adventure to the USA last year. Now, when we have new team members join us here on Twix, we like to talk to them about their work and their field. Kate and I joined Twix together way back in 2020 in the middle of a lockdown and two and a half years later, I realised that I never actually told you what I do. So I'm just this voice in the air with no background, no stem, but today Kate's going to be taking the reins of the show and asking me about which letter in stem I represent and what I do. So over to you, Kate. What a pleasure to get to interview you, Ollie. It has been, it's been too long, Mm. too long. You've been on the show and telling us about everyone else's amazing stem and it's great we get to talk about yours and your birds. I know, it's terrifying being this side of the interview. Being the guest <laughs> is nerve-wracking. What a, oh my gosh, the responsibility. Ooh. It's, a, it's a different experience, isn't it? Mm-hmm. I promise not to grill you too much. Okay, amazing. <laughs> I love that. I'm also editing this episode, so I will remove it if you do. You really do have control yep. this episode. <laughs> <laughs> the power is here. <laughs> so, Ollie, to start with, we're going to get to your PhD later, mm-hmm. but... We want to know a little bit about about you and about how you ended up here in Tasmania. So you work here as a PhD candidate um, at the Institute for Marine and Antarctic Studies, um, but you're from the other side of the world. Mm. So how did you end up in Tasmania? That is a great question. So it's actually my third time living in Australia. So I've been told that I've dropped the accent quite a bit, but you might be able to detect it, listeners, but I'm actually from the UK, from the United Kingdom. I grew up near London, and I knew from a very early age that I wanted to work with animals, be it in any capacity. I thought I wanted to run a safari in Kenya for most (laughs) of my childhood. Watched a show called Wild at Heart, which is where I got Ah. that from. And I studied zoology at the University of Manchester. And one reason why I studied there was because they had a study abroad program. So at 19, I came and I lived in Brisbane for half a year studying at the University of Queensland. And I loved it so much that I tried to transfer, but I couldn't afford the international student fees. And I had to go back to Manchester and leaving Brisbane in the middle of summer and going back to Manchester in the middle of winter. It was bleak. (laughs) It was so bleak. Um, But I was desperate to come back so I then after I finished my undergraduate I moved back to Brisbane 
and I worked at Lone Pine Koala Sanctuary and I loved it and then I worked as a nanny and then I worked on a cattle station in the outback living the one of the most sort of stereotypical Australian lifestyles that you could for a few months which was great to see rural Australia and know that not all of Australia is this metropolis Australia then I had to go back because pesky visa life and I've always wanted to come back since so after living in Switzerland for a year I did a master's at the Natural History Museum and as part of my master's I went to Madagascar to study plovers which was super cool and it really confirmed that I wanted to study birds and keep working with birds so I had two goals come back to Australia and work with birds And when I was at UQ, I also had a professor who worked in Antarctica. And since then, I've like, I want to get to Antarctica or I want to make connections with people who work with Antarctica. So then the Institute for Marine and Antarctic Studies, I saw a project come up that was with birds and it was in Australia. And I was like, perfect. Oh, amazing. And we're very lucky to have you here. And just just hearing you talk about that, like I've known you for a while now, but didn't know all of that amazing stuff that you did before you started your postgraduate study. So all those experiences you had in all those different countries, were you were you sort of seeking them out because you wanted to really figure out exactly what you were interested in? Or did you just want to get as much experience as possible? That's a great question. And it's definitely the latter in that I was seeking experiences. So I've always loved traveling. And the wonderful thing about working in zoology is that there's animals all over the world. And there's so many opportunities for where you can go and where you can work. Another reason why I wanted to study at the University of Manchester was because they had this field trip to South Africa. So I went there in my first year to study animal behavior. And again, it's sort of reiterating the fact that I love field work. And it's Amusing to think that I'm doing a PhD because I never wanted to do a PhD. So at the end of my undergraduate degree, I was like, I want to go into science communication. I love presenting. I want to do that side of science. I have no interest in academia, which was also driven by one of my tutors telling me how toxic academia is at the time. And so I was like, okay, great. For my honours project, I'm going to do a science media project, which included writing a book about a pigeon learning to fly. (laughs) But then this master's came up and I was like, oh, that sounds quite cool and I want to do it. And being based at the Natural History Museum and walking past a stegosaurus on your way to class each day is an unreal experience. And then I was like, okay, great. I've done my master's. I'm out. I've got no (laughs) more need for study. Goodbye university. And I kept applying to this job in South Georgia for several years in a row. And I was, I had the qualifications, but I was getting nowhere. And I found out from someone who sort of knew more about the hiring process that they prefer people that have a doctorate. Mm. And so that's how I ended up then getting a PhD, which I'm not sure if that answers fully your original question, but that is how I ended up staying in academia much longer than I expected to. No, it, it absolutely does. I guess I was just kind of wondering about that that really rich sort of body of experience you had before your PhD because um, it's also really amazing to hear you talk about going to um, so many other countries and I think you know Australia being so far from other countries it's it's often like among Australian undergraduate students a bit more of a foreign idea that you know you could hop over to other countries so I think I think that's amazing and I think you know good on you for getting all that experience and really glad that it brought you here. 
That was a great little story about Ollie's journey to her PhD, but stick with us for part two as we get into the nitty-gritty of what her PhD is about. You're listening to That's What I Call Science, and today we are talking about seabirds with our very own Ollie Dove. My name is Kate Johnson, and I'm joined by Ollie Dove from the Institute for Marine and Antarctic Studies, where we are sitting today at the University of Tasmania. So, Ollie, what is your PhD all about? Well, Kate, this is the part of the episode that I was most nervous about, because you now realise how, as a guest, you're like, oh, I've got to sum up my research in a few (laughs) sentences. How do I do that? But what I'm doing here is I'm looking at the behaviour of two seabird species. So I'm looking at little penguins and short-tailed shearwaters. And what's amazing about these two seabird species, one of them flies, one of them doesn't, and yet they live so close to each other. They live in an overlapping colony and it's amazing when you're with them in the field and you see their interactions with one another but I'm not actually studying those interactions as fascinating as I find it I'm looking at their behavior when they're at sea so seabirds they breed on land and they're restricted to having that base when they're raising chicks but they still feed at sea and what I'm looking at is I'm looking at how they're moving underwater. So I put these little devices called biologgers on the backs of birds, only temporarily, they're not forever, they're just for one foraging trip. And they take them out to sea and they're collecting data on how deep they're diving, how fast they're moving and where they are. With that information, I can draw up dive profiles and it's amazing because you can visualise how the bird is moving in the water because obviously we're not there with them we're not seeing it and it's not always possible to put a camera on a bird so you can't put a device that's too big or anything that's gonna hinder them from getting their food because that Mm. would just be morally unethical Mm -hmm. but we can use this data to visualize it in a way and then once we've worked out okay so how are they behaving we can work out what is affecting this behavior so tasmanian waters in the southeast are warming at three to four times the global average that waters are warming, as well as there being a a boom in the aquaculture and fish farming industry. So there are these pressures on the marine organisms that live here in southeast Tasmania. And if we can understand how they're behaving, what environmental variables are affecting that behaviour, we can then work to detect, okay, so are there anthropogenic effects, anthropogenic meaning human, affecting this behaviour? And should we be looking to have mitigations and ways of preventing or helping aid that. So, Ollie, you mentioned that you attach these little loggers to these birds and then you can track their behaviour. That's really cool. But how how do you get these wild animals in your hands for long enough and at the right at the appropriate time to be able to put those trackers on them? How do you catch your birds? Oh, <laughs> such a good question. I love talking about fieldwork. And listener, I can show some scars I have up uh-huh. on my arms. I can confirm. Being bitten <laughs> by birds and the claws. Mm, so The battle wounds. Yeah, which are fairly earned because honestly, if someone was taking me out of a oh home and putting something on my back, I could, uh, I could fully understand it. Yeah. But these, the little penguins and the short-tailed shearwaters, they live in burrows. They're actually mm-hmm. burrowing seabirds, which is such a funny concept when you think of a bird living underground. <laughs> but they make these burrows. And when they're rearing their chicks, so shearwaters 
typically have one chick a season. Penguins have two chicks at a time and occasionally they can do two lots of two in a season. Mm -hmm. What we do is that we know where they are and because they're burrowing, we can get them out of the burrow which is all done under an ethical permit and you're trained. So listeners, I would never recommend putting your hand in a little penguin burrow. A, it will hurt you and B, it's not polite to the bird. And what we do is that I have this electrical tape and I use several layers of their feathers. So I I put sort of three strips on the tape and then I put this little device, which it looks like an eraser. And this tape is really good and it can last, except occasionally you do lose those devices yeah yeah which is unfortunate and the penguins they during their breeding they're only going out for a day at a time to forage locally both adults are provisioning for the chicks they have this really reliable schedule where one goes out the other comes back so even though when their breeding isn't reliable when they begin breeding their behavior is very reliable the shearwaters on the other hand they're an amazing bird they all sort of lay their egg at the same time And then they're looking after their chick and you can see these chicks grow. And it's short-tailed shearwater chicks are so funny because they end up growing this mullet of feathers (laughs) that they have, which is gorgeous, but it's hard not to laugh at them. Very on trend. Very very Australian. Yeah, very Very, Australian. (laughs) And short-tailed shearwater, they're not a big bird. They're about 600 grams, but they do this huge migration each year. So outside the breeding season, they go up past Japan and, and back. But then when they're breeding here in Tasmania, they alternate what foraging trips they're going on. So foraging meaning when they're looking for food at sea, they do either short trips around Tassie, which are the trips I'm looking at. And those short trips are to provision their chicks. They sort of go on two to three day trips to feed their chick. But every now and then they're like, no, no, I need some R&R for myself. I need to look after my own condition. Peace out. And they go down to Antarctica. (laughs) And like within two weeks, they can get to Antarctica and back. And they're a small bird. And it is a huge way to fly within two weeks. And I had some tracks of going down to like as in the GPS tracks of them going down and it's just incredible. So I have to retrieve these devices off the backs Mm -hmm. of the birds to be able to download my data. Mm. And when I've got the bird back and I'm holding them in my hand and it's one that's been to Antarctica because we can tell because it's been a few weeks since we've seen them. And it's like, wow, you've just been on such a big journey and I get tired when I run 5K. (laughs) (laughs) It's just incredible. Mm. The, The fact that, you know, you can tell someone as a fact that these birds fly that far, but to know that that personally, you know that bird has flown that journey is incredible. And Ollie, I know that your PhD is very physically draining and that's because <laughs> you do an awful lot of field work, which I know you also love a lot. So can you tell us a little bit about the field work you do? I love field work so much. So I've spent six months of my life across the last three years on an island called Wedge Island, which is not far from the Tasman Peninsula. You can actually see houses from the island, but it's completely uninhabited. It's about 1.5k in length. It's shaped like a wedge, hence the name. Mm -hmm. And I think of Wedge as my second home because I've actually spent more time on Wedge than I have in some of my houses in Hobart (laughs) because I've had to move a few times. But on Wedge, We have, there's a little hut, little storage hut, and that is it. So we have, we're camping, 
And for penguins, I'll be on the island for two to three weeks. But for the shearwaters, I'm on the island for five weeks because we deploy all the devices in the first two weeks. And then because some of the shearwaters might be going to Antarctica, we have to wait for three weeks for some of them to return. It's a gamble when we put out a device for a shearwater. Mm. Are they going to do a local trip or are they going to Antarctica? We had a couple of episodes last year that were based on Wedge Island where I interviewed some of my volleys at the time. So you would have heard a couple of these stories there. But basically, because we have no facilities, it's bare minimum. There's no showering. There's no toilets. (laughs) We have these big rocks and you go to the toilet within the tide line. And it is such a great (laughs) adventure and I love it. And because they're burrowing birds, I spend a lot of the time rolling around in dirt and it's (laughs) filthy. And I have two volunteers with me at a time and they change every 10 to 14 days. And I once had a volunteer come and they sort of, they came to stand near me because I was showing them something. And then they backed away automatically because I smelled so much of seabird (laughs) feces. And that was the one time I've had someone sort of recoil from me. (laughs) Otherwise, I had another volunteer who said I smelled better than they expected. So, you know, it's not glamorous work, but it's amazing. Oh, that's so that's so incredible. Getting so down and dirty for your PhD, Ollie. That's the best. (laughs) Yeah. And you should definitely have a listen to those episodes that Ollie recorded on Wedge Island to get a little window into the the glamorous island's life. But for now, stay with us for part three as Ollie and I talk about how she became involved in That's What I Call Science and her long-term love for science communication. You're listening to That's What I Call Science, and today you're with me, Kate Johnson, as I chat to our regular Twix host, Ollie Dove, about her work in seabird research and her psychom work. So, Ollie, you are our weekly or regular host here on Twix, so it's not surprising that you have a love of science communication. Have you always been interested in science communication? Yes. I would say is the short answer. As I mentioned earlier, I wrote that book about a pigeon as part of my <laughs> undergraduate degree. But my earliest thing of psychom that I can think is I actually wrote a book about dinosaurs for a biology project when I was like 14 or something. But having that love of presenting, by the time I was in my early 20s, I was like, I want to do more of this. I want to keep, mm-hmm. I want to combine the two things. And as I said, I wasn't that big on the world of academia and I wanted to just do presenting, but I also really like writing. So over the past 10 years since my undergraduate, I've always had some sort of psychom volunteering in the background. It often started as writing articles. I had this, I say job, but it was unpaid, but I was basically translating academic journals into digestible information sheets oh cool which yeah which I think I would love to do again because I get really frustrated I know that papers have to be factual but there's almost an expectation that they have to be boring and (laughs) full of jargon yes the jargon that's just so unnecessary and there's the catchphrases and the cliches that you get and I just want (laughs) to cut all the waffle out and just be like this is what the paper's saying my dream job would be having a website where you could just summarize papers or a dream job I have way too many dream jobs (laughs) 
when I was doing my master's again, I had the fortunate chance to be on a radio show back then. It was a student radio show. We had about five listeners, all it was our parents, basically. <laughs> Shout out to mum and dad. But I was on with my friend Nick and Naomi and it was called The Natural Selection and we would go into the studio each week, record a live hour-long episode where we talked about a different theme and then we would bring articles and jokes and sort of banter and I just love that informal way of communicating science. And so when I came into my PhD, I definitely wanted to keep that going and i got to say, I think Twix has been one of the best things about my life in Hobart. I can attest to that. It was definitely one of the most important parts of my PhD for keeping me sane as well. Yes, and keeping motivated because I think PhD is such a drain on the mental health of the candidate for various reasons and it can be really disheartening because as much as I love field work, it meant that I didn't have data and I couldn't produce papers from the very beginning of Mm -hmm. my PhD and so there's someone I started at the same time as and they were producing paper after paper and it can be so disheartening to have no output as a scientist and you're made to feel that if you don't have papers you're not contributing to the world of science Mm -hmm. and I am so against that mentality but having Twix and being able to have STEM researchers communicate their work it gave me a drive and it gave me a reason to keep going in science. And you were sort of you know as being part of Twix think continuing that work you were doing where you were translating those academic articles into real people language because that's what we try to do here at Twix and it's it's a very rewarding sort of thing to do. So speaking about the science communication that you've done here in Hobart, what other things have you done in the science communication area, Ollie? Ooh, uh, exciting question. I've been really lucky with the people that I've been able to meet partially through Twix and partially I think once people know that you like science communication, more opportunities open up to you because people are like, if they need someone to present at something and they're like, oh, I know that she's not afraid of a group of people and speaking in front of them, I'll get her to do it. And again, because of Wix, I was invited to work for the Australian Antarctic Festival last year. We had different staff and students at IMAS having different exhibitions and getting to show off their science and what they do. I also ran a series of public talks by researchers and as part of that we had a panel which again I feel like a lot of this interview has linked back to stuff we've done last year but it went out as a Twix episode (laughs) so check out the Twix episode that we had at the festival and it was a panel about talking about the Antarctic workforce and sort of stigma around certain things and how the workforce is a lot more than what you actually see and again doing science communication led to me being able to think about things that I never would have had to before. And the other main science communication event that I've been involved with in Hobart was that I was part of the Festival of Bright Ideas last year, which was really fun. So it's hard to say, but I was one of the five recipients of the STEM stage show scholarship. (laughs) I missed off a word. STEM stage show skills scholarship. There's a lot of S's. It's something (laughs) about STEM being on a stage. And it was great because I got to work with a TASI director, Maeve, and I was working with four other PhD candidates. And the five of us and Maeve, we put together a sketch show to perform at the Festival of Bright Ideas to some school groups and also to the general public. And it was so fun to be able to show my PhD research in a silly, goofy way. So basically, of my four castmates, I had three of them dress up as a little penguin. I had one of them <laughs> dress as a short-tailed shorter. Then I had 
one dressed up as a dog, another as a cat, and they had to chase off the seabirds <laughs> to sort of teach people about the dangers of these predators and how they can mm. affect the seabirds. And it's just what I love about Cyclone. Absolutely. And you keep talking about how much you love it, but you're also extremely talented at it. Oh, thank I just you. That's very like kind. I need to <laughs> let everyone know. Um, and that is evidenced in the fact that Ollie recently won an award for her science communication. So your award, the Beyond Academia Award out of IMAS, out of the Institute for Marine and Antarctic Studies. So what did that award um, recognise and what did winning it mean for you, Ollie? Yes, I was one of the three Beyond Academia Award winners this year and I was awarded it for the SciComm work that I do outside of my PhD and it meant an awful lot to me because early on in my PhD, around the first year mark, I was told by sort of an authoritative figure that I should stop my science communication work because there's a recurring trend that I've heard of that Science communication is one of the pastimes that can be seen as distracting from a PhD's candidature. Mm -hmm. So, for example, if I spent every evening at the pub or binge watching Netflix, no one would care. But there's this fear by some more old school academics that science communication is going to distract you from the hard science, from mm -hmm. the serious science. Or you're not a proper scientist if you like dressing up as a penguin to help teach children about penguins and to have been told that advice early on in my PhD and then two years on have my faculty actually officially recognize it and this award's going to go on my academic transcript so the stuff that I'm doing in science communication is being officially recognized and without getting too emotional over it it just feels like a huge win. Absolutely absolutely having been told that so early on and then having that sort of turnaround where someone's obviously seen the value of what you're doing must be really validating and really nice because what you're doing I mean I'm obviously biased because <laughs> here we are in a science communication podcast but <laughs> it's incredibly important I don't know how any scientist expects the general public to care about the science we're doing unless we can speak to them about it in a language in a way in a manner that's fun and accessible and i think what you're doing is incredible it's been a real pleasure talking to you ollie thank um, you and sensing some some themes some stage acting some books some radio shows and i hope that we'll hear and read and see lots of you in the future of your career oh thank you so much i'm tearing up <laughs> it's been so lovely working with you kate <laughs> you too ollie this is just going to turn into a video oh yeah we should probably cut the thing <laughs> yeah, before right, we just go on a compliment yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for listening to That's What I Call Science. We love bringing you science-related content and we hope you enjoyed today's show. If you love the show, you can get in touch with us by searching That's What I Call Science or That's Science Taz on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. My name is Kate Johnson and I'd like to thank Ollie Dove for telling us about her world of birds and the world of science communication. See you next time. This program was made possible with support from the Community Broadcasting Foundation. Find out more at cbf.org.au. You've been listening to That's What I Call Science, brought to your station and across the nation via the Community Radio Network. You can find That's What I Call Science on all major podcast streaming services and social media platforms. Like and subscribe for on-demand science updates from the team. That's What I Call Science is proudly recorded in Tasmania at Edge Radio. Head to edgeradio.org.au for more information on how you can support community radio. 
GemMaker are a proud sponsor of That's What I Call Science. GemMaker provide expert advice, services and training to commercialise new knowledge and technologies. Go to gemmaker.com.au for more information.